Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, November 7th, 2020. Right now it is Wednesday morning, November 4th, and I have our friend TruthVids here once again to discuss the next few points in his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 13 of our series. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Hello, TruthVids. It's good to have you here once again. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to be back. So um, we did three of the major prophets uh, two weeks ago, um, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Jeremiah. So now we're also on to Isaiah, and he's just as important as the other three. And he'll show all the prophecies or talking all about Israelites, um, you know, being deported and dispersing into Europe, showing that the white Germanic tribes are these Israelites, right, Bill? Right, absolutely. The, the, I mean, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, we illustrated that they were the prophets of the New Covenant and that the New Covenant was intended for the children of Israel. Now, there are a lot of other things that we can illustrate from those prophets, but those points were crucial to our discussion last week and those points are going to remain crucial to understanding what we say about these other prophets. The faith, the Christian faith, was originally called Catholic by early Christians such as Irenaeus, for instance, because it was received whole. Catahalus is the Greek phrase from which we get the word Catholic. Kata can mean down or according to, and hollis means whole. So Catholic means according to the whole. And it was used to describe the fact that both the Old and New Testament scriptures were recognized as the word of God. And together, taken together, that was the Christian faith. The Roman Church later perverted the meaning of the term Catholic and used it to describe the application of the faith rather than the reception of the faith. The word was never meant by the earliest Christian writers to refer to the application of the faith. The prophets plus the apostles equals Christianity. The Jews have tried to do away with the apostles. The modern churches have basically done away with the prophets. Without one or the other, you do not have Christianity. The writings of the prophets were preserved because as men realized that their words were true, because short-term prophecies were fulfilled, then their value was recognized and the fact that their words did indeed represent the word of God was laid bare. If the short-term prophecies were fulfilled, then the long-term prophecies would also be fulfilled. Many of those prophecies were of Christ himself. So when he came, he announced that he came to fulfill the words of the prophets. To fulfill them 
That doesn't mean to end them. That doesn't mean to make them null and void. He came to fulfill them to make sure that those prophecies, those long-term prophecies, did come true. Many of those prophecies are of reconciliation with Israel, the same Israel that was put off from ancient Palestine in the Babylonian and Assyrian captivities. What Yahweh God would do with Israel in the future. So, when Christ came, if the apostles did not go to Israel, then God is an utter failure. So the apostles went to Mesopotamia and Europe while they professed that they were going to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. The Roman Catholic tales of apostles in non-white or marginally white places are all unfounded fables of 3rd and 4th century Roman Christianity that were used to support early universalist inclusivity. But none of them have any documented evidence. Apostles in India and Egypt and other faraway places, it is, for the most part, just fables. They're not founded. The apostles clearly were gathered in, in Jerusalem and in Antioch in Syria right until the end, for the most part. And the only records in our New Testament of apostles in other places are those of Paul of Tarsus and, and Barnabas in, in Europe, or of Peter in Babylon. And he's in Babylon when he wrote his first epistle. And he's there because at that time, Babylon was part of the Parthian Empire, and it was a, a white, it, it, it was actually a consortium of white nations that lived in Babylonia and, and lower Mesopotamia. So Peter was, a lot of these people descended from the people of Judah and Benjamin, who were brought into Babylonian captivity, but had never returned to Jerusalem. So that's why Peter was in Babylon. He was the apostle to the circumcision, where Paul and Barnabas were apostles to the uncircumcised, to those who were, those 12 tribes of Israel who had departed from the laws of Moses many centuries before Christ. And they tried to claim that Catholic means universal now as well, don't they? That that they they completely pervert it now. Well, that well it's right. for everybody essentially. But that's what they've claimed for the last perhaps fourteen, fifteen hundred years. However, the original way that the early church fathers, such as Irenaeus, used the term was to describe the reception of the faith, that it was whole, that you couldn't be a Christian without accepting both Old and New Testaments as they were both equally important to the faith and to the doctrines. If we accept both Old and New Testaments, then we have to accept the Word of God and what he said would become of the lost sheep, that the northern ten tribes and and the people of Judah and Benjamin, 
so it's really elements of all 12 tribes that were taken into Assyrian captivity, that he would reconcile himself to them, and, and that's who the apostles were going to according to their own words. According to Paul of Tarsus himself, right out of his own mouth in Acts chapter 26, according to James himself in his own epistle in, in the opening verses. And there's much other evidence in, in Peter as well, and, and other evidence in, in Paul's epistles, that that is who they were going to. And they knew where those people were from, not only from the history, such as Flavius Josephus, but mostly from the words of the prophets, because that's where the prophets said they would be. So, so Bill, was um, Parthia, did, did Parthia become Christian towards the end? Was Peter and the apostles successful in uh, converting Parthia? There were Christians in Parthia, yes, and, and I believe there were a large number of Christians in Persia after the Parthian Empire was um, eclipsed by the native Persians, right? The Parthians were actually Israelites of the captivity who were resettled in an area along the Caspian Sea. That could be demonstrated from the pages of Flavius Josephus and, and the Greek classics that that's that the Parthians had come from the Saka and from their own language. The Parthians called their leader Arsakes. And if you think about that term Arsakes, it really means the head of the Saka. That word R in, in um, Hebrew it basically means a mountain, but it also means a high peak and, and has similar applications. So applied to a man, it would refer to the chieftain, to the head of the tribe. And that's what the Arsaka was. The Arsakes was the, um, the head of the tribe of the Saka. And that's the title that the Parthians had used to describe their ruler. So that, that's just, I, I mean, there are many other ways to understand that the Parthians were part of the Saka, but that is a pretty obvious one as far as I'm concerned. And yes, there were a lot of, there, there were many Christians in Parthia and Persia in the first few centuries AD, but they were overrun by the Arab conquests of the East which occurred in, in the 7th and 8th centuries AD. So they not only were forced to convert to Islam, but they were also browned, that they were eventually bastardized by these Arabs under Islam, which is why there's so many, so many um, white-looking people in Iran and, and Afghanistan today, but they're not really white, that they, um, that they all have that same blood that they've been sharing for 2,000 years. And there's a lot of Arab blood. And, and most of the populations in those areas appear to be Arabs. Okay, that's a digression. Um, point number 37, and, and this is Isaiah and proof of Israel's destiny in Europe. I don't know if you have anything else to say. 
No, uh, the, the only thing uh, I was going to say is the Parthian Empire is sometimes called the Arsacid Empire as well, isn't it? Isn't it? It just shows again uh, related to the kings. They would call it after the kings, the Arsake. Right. <laughs> okay. Speaking about the prophet Isaiah, the first 40 chapters of Isaiah are concerned with prophecies about ancient Israel, Babylon, Assyria, and the other surrounding nations. Many interconnections with this prophecy and actual history serve to prove that the Israelites were white, or more accurately, that they helped to form the stock of what later became known as European or Caucasian. Isaiah chapter 2 references the, makes references to the ships of Tarshish, and that proves that the Israelites were still engaged in Mediterranean trade with Europe. Now, Tarshish was ultimately called Iber because the Hebrew word Iber or Eber means to cross over the other side. And Tarshish is to cross over the Mediterranean Sea from Palestine. That word Eber, the Hebrew word, stuck. And the word Tarshish, by, the time, by Roman times, was virtually forgotten. And the Romans called the land Iberia. After the Hebrew usage, the people started to be called Iberians or Celt-Iberians, and that's because they were named after the Hebrews. It's very clear that many Israelites had settled in the Iberian Peninsula in order for it to have had that name in ancient times, to have acquired that name. How does any land get an English name in, say, the colonial period? How does that happen? Because Englishmen move there and settle there. That's how it happens. You're not going to call your own land after a foreign name. The Chinese don't call China, China. They have their own name for it. The Japanese don't call Japan, Japan. They're names that we stuck on those nations so that we identify them in our language, but they don't call themselves by that name. Why would the Romans call Iberia after a Hebrew name if the people themselves weren't using the term Iberia? So if Englishmen crossed over and found New England. The people that founded New England must that, that inhabited it and created it must also be English. It, it's pretty plain to me that these were Hebrews in Iberia. But at that time, there weren't any people of other races, of non-white races in Iberia. When the Romans came to Iberia, they found tribes of wealth. Of, of white people. And they couldn't really distinguish between the Celts and the Iberians. They just called the place Celt Iberia because it was Iberia that was inhabited by people that appeared to be Celts and spoke Celtic-related languages. 
that this is um, pretty simple to me to understand. It, it doesn't twist any history. It's actually agreeable to all of the ancient classics to understand it that way. Strabo wrote of the scriptures, 6,000 lines of scriptures that the Iberians had. What were they? Well, they're unknown to us now, but the Celts had their own early Christian church, which was distinct from the Roman church and survived in Ireland until the 14th century AD, if I'm not mistaken, until the 1300s, or perhaps it's the 13th century and the 1200s. So that Irish church was separate and had a separate origin and development and doctrines from the Roman church for, 12, for at least 1,200 years. How did they get Christianity? if they had it before Rome. And it was recognized in early church councils. And, and it's recognized in writings such as Bede, that those Irish priests were there before Roman Catholicism came in, into, um, in, into, into England. The, the Celtic church and the Roman Catholic church in the early years of the Roman Catholic church's development were actually competing to convert the Anglo-Saxons to Christianity. That's another digression. But it shows that this Iberia had to be Hebrew in its nature, or it would never have that name. In Ezekiel, what we can, Isaiah's reference to the ships of Tarshish proved that the Israelites themselves were still engaged in Mediterranean trade with Europe. And we can cross-reference that to Ezekiel chapters 27 and 28. And the lamentations over Tyre and the Prince of Tyre. And it mentions Dan and Javan traveling together in European trade with Tyre. So if the Israelites were brown Arabs or, or even Negroes, can we imagine the tribe of Dan traveling together in European trade with Tyre, with the great merchant city of Tyre, on the ancient coast of the tribe of Asher is where it was located, with ships full of niggers and, and whites mixed, or Arabs and whites mixed, and nowhere in any literature do we see any reference to something like that. That phenomenon is never mentioned anywhere. Or in Athens, right? If, if they were traveling with Javan, then, then you'd read all these uh, Athenian historians would be mentioning, you know, these niggers from the coast of Tyre, but there's no mention of that. Right, there's Hercules no mention whatsoever. would be a black guy, right? And, and wherever the Phoenicians are mentioned, they're described as fair, white, and blonde. Wherever they are mentioned. So, so, Bill, was um, Isaiah, was he in the Ten Kingdoms and Hosea was in Judah? Or have I got that the wrong way? <clears throat> Isaiah was in Jerusalem. He witnessed that the... Um, right. He was in Judah. He remained in Judah throughout his entire prophetic career. He was writing the prophecies against the northern tribes of Israel 
and telling them that they were going to be taken into Assyrian captivity. And they were. And he was telling King Hezekiah that the Assyrians were also going to invade Judah, and they did. And then he was telling King Hezekiah that Jerusalem itself would be spared by God, and it was. And that's why Isaiah's writing has been preserved to us for for 2,700 years, because it's true. And all these things did happen. As Isaiah was announcing them in Jerusalem, they were being recorded, and that's why his writings were recorded, because all of these things that he announced had actually come true. But there's a lot of far-ranging things that Isaiah announced, and the truth of them would not be evident for many centuries. And and that's the nature of biblical prophecy. Those short-term prophecies come true, and men realize that they should preserve those long-term prophecies because that's the word of God, because the short-term prophecies all came true. And that's the test of a prophet, and that's a test of truth itself. And that's why I'm a Christian. Isaiah chapter 10, in a prophecy of the destruction of Assyria. Now, the destruction of Assyria didn't happen for almost 90 years after Isaiah stopped writing. And Assyria was destroyed, as Isaiah said it would be. But the proof of that could not materialize in Isaiah's lifetime. Men held on to Isaiah's recorded prophecies because those short-term prophecies all came true and men knew that these long-term prophecies would also come true. And it gave Israel hope, so they held on to these. In Isaiah chapter 10, in a prophecy of the destruction of Assyria, it says, And the light of Israel shall be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame. And it shall devour and burn his thorns, meaning the thorns of the Assyrian, in one day, and his briars in one day, and shall consume the glory of his forest, meaning the glory of the Assyrian people. Asher being used, the eponymous ancestor, the patriarch of the Assyrians being used as a reference to his fruitful field, his forest, and and that's the way the Hebrew language was employed, that whatever happened to the descendants actually was happening to the patriarch, right? And the rest of his, the rest of the trees of his forest shall be few that a child may write them. And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob, meaning the survivors that were in the Assyrian captivity, shall no more again stay upon him that smote them. In other words, they would not stay in Assyria, but shall stay upon Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. Isaiah chapter 10 and chapter 11 also makes it very clear that the children of Israel themselves would be engaged in the destruction of Assyria. And that's exactly what happened. But in history, in the ancient inscriptions, 
we see that it was the Cymri or Cimmerians, the Sacae or Scythians, who had engaged with the, the, the Babylonians, Medes, and Persians to destroy all the cities of Assyria. Around 612 BC is when Nineveh was destroyed. Around 606, 607, 605 in there BC, the book Nezar ascended to the throne in Babylon and began to reassemble the empire under his own rule. Isaiah chapter 11, prophecies of the future of Israel after the destruction of Assyria. And in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. Now, of course, Jesse is King David's father. To it shall the nation seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Alam, which is Persia. Cush is Ham, not necessarily Ethiopia in the south of Egypt, but the ancient lands of Cush in Mesopotamia and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. So we see a root of Jesse and... That's a, that's a prophecy of Christ who stood as an ensign of the people and to him the nation sought, not until the apostles came to Europe. And then we see that Ephraim and Judah will no longer vex or envy one another. And that should be cross-referenced to the two-stick prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 37 that we discussed last week. Or, or, I'm sorry, two weeks ago, because we took a vacation last week. And then it says, but they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west. They shall spoil them of the east together. And they shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. Now, in that same chapter, a reference to Israelites there is a reference to Israelites of both captivities a little further on, and it says, and there shall be a highway for the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria, like as it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. And these references to Assyria and Egypt are not references to the geographical places. They're references to the captivities of Israel that came out of Egypt and the captivities of Israel that came out of Assyria because not all Israelites went to Palestine 
with Moses during the Exodus, as it is witnessed in Diodorus Siculus, book 40 of his Library of History, and it's also evidenced in other ways in Scripture itself. Many of the Israelites had departed from Egypt by sea and settled in various places along the coast of Anatolia and in Europe. And Diodorus Siculus describes so it that. So it shows it's all genetic. Oh, sorry. So, so right. It, it is all genetic. The, the, the references to the Egyptian captivity in this chapter of Isaiah are references to people who had departed from Israel in Egypt but had never gone into captivity in Assyria because every Israelite was in one captivity or both, right? Every Israelite was in the loins of the Jacob and his sons when they went to Egypt, probably around 1700 BC. And every Israelite can be considered Egypt in that sense that they are descendants of the Israelite captivity in Egypt, where then you had a second captivity, the Assyrian captivity. And those people have a different destiny in prophecy than the people who were only in the Egyptian captivity. While they are all Israelites and they would all be Christians, the Romans descended from Israelites, and it's very clear in Paul's epistle to the Romans. The Romans claim they settled, that they descended from the Trojans, and that's evident in the classical histories. And the Trojans had actually come from the Isles of the Sea to settle in the Troad originally through Samothrace. And there is a lot of ancient archaeological evidence which can connect them to Egypt and, and ultimately to the Israelites in Egypt. So we can take that for face value. The truth is that these various nations in Europe, the, the Danans, the Mycenaean society also came from Egypt, that there is absolute evidence for these mi migrations in, in so many different respects that it's hard to ignore the narrative that can be pieced together once, they're, once this evidence is accepted. So we have the captivity of Egypt, and, and the Bible is the book that really stitches it all together. And they are the Romans and, and Greeks and other Israelites who did not go into the exodus with Moses. And then you have the Dorian Greeks who came from Palestine. They went through the exodus, as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But none of them, even though they were Israelites, none of them were the stone cut out of the mountain without hands that was destined to destroy all of the empires in the vision of Nebuchadnezzar right? So those Israelites, the Assyrian captivity, are on a slightly different prophetic and because of that historic track than the Israelites who settled Europe by sea 
a thousand years before them. So they became the Germanic tribes, and their history is different because the prophecies about the things that they would do is quite different. It, yeah, it's, they ended up ruling the world, right? That, yes. that was their destiny by conquering every country. Yes, that was their destiny. They were the stone cut out of that mountain without hands, described in Daniel chapter 2, which would um, always which would come to dominate the world and to destroy the old pagan world. And that's what they did once they became Christians. And we are at, we are where we are at today because of other prophecies. But our culture still, even with all of its stains and warts and, and wounds and, and, and scratches, our culture still dominates the world. That this Anglo-Germanic hegemony that's been built, and and even though we fight with each other all the time, our culture still dominates the world, as it is said in Scripture. But we are, we appear to be fading fast right now for other reasons, which are also spelled out in the prophecies. But that doesn't mean we're going away. There will be a full recovery. Once we repent, once we realize these things and repent, that's an might be a long road yet. This the way long road in front of us, and how that's going to be, we cannot know, but it's going to happen. If everything else in that book that was written in that book has happened, then that's going to happen. Nineveh fell in 612 BC, roughly. And the cities of Assyria were destroyed by a coalition of Persians and Medes and Babylonians and Cymri or Cimmerians, who in some records are called Sake or Scythians, which are all the same people. Many of the Cimmerians did not remain in Mesopotamia or Anatolia after that, but they drove west through Phrygia and Lydia and sacked cities of the Greeks before crossing the Bosporus into ancient Thrace. These Cimmerians were the Cymri of the ancient inscriptions. Then, in other respects, you have the Scythians, or Saka, as they're called, that the later waves of these same people are called different names by the Greeks. There's a reason for that, because the Greeks were not that familiar with them, until they, they had been well entrenched in Europe, the Greeks learned of them through the Assyrians at first. And, and Assyrian, when the Cimmerians had first invaded the Phrygia and Lydia and, and the Greek Anatolia in the late 7th century BC and very early 6th century BC, the Assyrian language was the lingua franca. It was the language of trade and diplomacy. And even the Greeks understood the language because they interacted with the Assyrian Empire. Quite frequently, quite regularly, they had trade with them, that they had diplomatic relations with them. You can't ignore a great empire just to your east 
when, when you're a collection of much less populous small lands in, in the West, you can't ignore this big, huge empire just east of you, right? We can't imagine that these ancient societies existed in their own little vacuums. There was much interaction. In fact, there were actually Greek mercenaries. And this is mentioned in the Lyric Poets, which are sixth century Greek writings. There were Greek mercenaries present in the early sixth century among the armies of the Babylonians that were destroying Jerusalem. So the Greeks called these first waves of these people that would ultimately be what we know as the Germanic tribes. They called the first waves after the word that the Assyrians used to describe them, Cymri. They called them Kimeroi, which we anglicize into Kimerians. A century later, Persia, first Babylonia, and then Persia had control of the empire. And the language of the Assyrians, while it was still used in certain records, it was no longer the language of trade and diplomacy. Aramaean became the language of trade and diplomacy in place of the Assyrian language, which is called Akkadian. Aramaean is very closely related to Hebrew because the Chaldeans are very closely related to Hebrews. And, and they may have even been a branch of the most ancient Hebrews. There is evidence of that. In any event, they spoke a related language, a language related to both Hebrew and to Syrian, Aramaean. Aram being ancient Syria. And the Hebrews were actually professed to be Syrians in the days of Abraham. So, Aramaean became the lingua franca, and when these secondary waves of, of these Cymri or Sake or Germanic people started coming into Europe, the Greeks called them by the Persian name, Saka. And, and that word Saka is all over the ancient Greek classical histories. From there, the Greeks started also calling them Scythians, because that's what they called themselves. The people, that's what the people actually called themselves, evidently. And after a century, after another century, after the time of Herodotus, they started calling them Galatahi, from which we get the English word Galatians, and which apparently the Romans had contracted to Gaul or Gauls. When the Galatahi invaded, came down from the Danube River Valley and invaded the land of the Etruscans and then had looted Rome itself around 390 BC, Livy, the Roman historian, wrote that they were a strange new people. The Romans had never seen them before. Now, by that time, the city of Rome itself was 350 years old, and the Greeks and Romans were forever exploring the Danube River Valley. The Phocian Greeks had their own settlements on the Danube River Valley. It's very possible that Hallstatt, 
is one of those early settlements because they were always looking for salt and other mineral resources that they could use in, in, in their own society. They were forever exploring for those things. So they must have known the lands of, of the Danube River Valley very well. If they never, if Livy wrote that these Galatahi were a strange new people, or these Gauls as he called them, because the word German had not yet been coined, that wouldn't come along for another 300 years. If Livy called them a strange new people, that means that for the first 350 years of Rome's history, even though they had been in that area, they didn't see these people. They didn't come out of nowhere. They came from Asia. They came around the Black Sea and down the Danube River Valley. That was their progression. And, and that, that can actually be demonstrated in the Greek classics, which is what my German origins papers that I wrote 15 years ago attempted to do. In Isaiah chapter 13, we read a prophecy about the coming destruction of Babylon. The noise of a multitude in the mountains, like as of a great people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together. Yahweh of hosts musters the host of the battle. They come from a far country, from the end of heaven. Even Yahweh and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Behold, I will stir up the needs against them, which shall not regard silver, and as for gold, they shall not delight in it. In other words, they're not going to take a ransom from Babylon. They're going to destroy the Babylonian Empire. They're going to conquer it. Now, many of the Qumri, or Israelites, were settled in the cities of the Medes by the Assyrians. As Assyrian power declined in the later 7th and early 6th centuries BC, the Persians became subject to the Medes. But under Cyrus, that situation was reversed from about 550 BC. And the Persians became the dominant partner. But many of the, because Cyrus was the son of a Persian prince, and the daughter of the king of the Medes. He was of noble birth on both sides, his mother and his father. So when he, when his grandfather died, he ultimately became the king of the Medes and the Persians, and the Persians became the dominant partner in a relationship. Just like and when, that's quite unusual, isn't it? A Shemite nation and a Japhethite nation kind of merging together. Well, well, yes, that is unusual, but they were neighbors also, and, and they, they must have shared a common culture, that their proximity for all that time. The tragic poets of the, I'm sorry, the tragic poets of the mid-5th century BC, if you read Aeschylus, Euripides, they often referred to the Persians as Medes. They called them Medes probably for poetic reasons. And Cyrus a mule, right? <laughs> well, yes, Herodotus called Cyrus a mule because his father was a Persian and his mother was a Mede. So Herodotus, Herodotus said, he called Cyrus a mule, but he put those words in, into the mouth of an oracle 
that um, Croesus, who was the king of the Lydian Empire of Western Anatolia, would be overthrown by a mule. And that mule was Cyrus. Cyrus had conquered the Lydian Empire. So <laughs> that's how Herodotus called Cyrus a mule. The scripture in, in um, Isaiah chapter chapter 40-something, I'm going to say 44, 45 perhaps in there, calls Cyrus a man of gold. But Cyrus was actually killed around 539 B.C., crossing the Araxes River to try to conquer the Scythians of what would we might call Armenia today or Azerbaijan or that region north of the Araxes River. He tried to conquer them because he knew that he had to use that route to get around the Black Sea and cut off the wood supply of the Greeks so that they couldn't build any more ships and he could ultimately conquer the Greeks. It didn't really work out for him. Okay. Many of the former Israelites, who were called Qumri, or, or by that time Sake, had remained in Media and Persia long enough to fight in the armies of the empire, to serve in the failed invasion of Greece. And eventually there arose a portion of them, the Parthians, who themselves came to dominate the empire. These are the upper barbarians of the writings of Flavius Josephus. It's to those people that he addressed his wars of the Judeans. They are, as Josephus described them, the ten tribes beyond Euphrates who were an immense multitude and not to be estimated by numbers. If we believe Isaiah, but we think that the Israelites are Jews, can you imagine all these rabbis swarming Nineveh? Can you imagine the Medes and the Persians even tolerating a bunch of filthy, disgusting, side-locked rabbis swarming, Minia, swarming Nineveh alongside the armies of the Persians and Medes? I mean, to think that these people were Jews is simply ridiculous. The Chimerians had, had the Chimeroi that, that helped destroy Nineveh, that they were fighting on the Hungarian plains against the Romans 400 years later. Were they Jews? If you believe Isaiah, and you should believe Isaiah because he was writing these things, he was writing 100 years before they happened, and they happened, and that's why his writing was preserved for all this time. If he was writing about things that never came to pass, he would have been mocked, ridiculed, and we would never know Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 14, right after this prophesied destruction of Assyria, we read, for Yahweh will have mercy on Jacob and will yet choose Israel and set them in their own land, not necessarily in Palestine, but in that new land that had been promised in earlier prophecies, like in 2 Samuel chapter 7, I believe it is. And the strangers shall be joined with them, and they shall cleave to the house of Jacob, well, these Assyrians, these Persians, these Medes, these other people were Adamic people, and they were related to 
the Hebrews by blood. Even though they were distant cousins, they were still Adamic people. And the people shall take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel shall possess them in the land of Yahweh, which is not necessarily Palestine, for servants and handmaids. And they shall take them captives whose captives they were. And they shall rule over their oppressors. Now, when the children of Israel were deported by the Assyrians, the Medes and the Persians who were subject to them would have been part of their armies. In other words, the Medes and the Persians would have been allied with the Assyrians as the Assyrians were conquering other nations. That's how empires work. So later, when the Cymri or Kimroi had migrated into Europe over the ensuing centuries, Theodorus Siculus explains that the Scythians, and this is in Book 2, Paragraph 43, or Chapter 43, I should say, of his Library of History, Theodorus Siculus explains that the Scythians had taken people of the Medes and people of the Assyrians and forcibly replanted them on the Black Sea and along the Tanais River, which feeds the Black Sea from the north which became known as the Crimea, that area, the, the, the Cimmerian land. So the biblical prophecies, especially those of Isaiah, put together with the classical histories, describes the beginnings of the formation of modern Europe and the Germanic people, as well as the Western Slavs, since the Sarmatians are often identified with those people. So we were enslaved, but we eventually became the masters and enslaved them, our, our slave masters, basically. And that's evident in this history, once you understand Isaiah and the Greek classics. Yes. So, so the Sarmatians were largely Assyrians, Babylonians, and Persians, with, that's, with Israelites there as well, of course. With Israelites there as well, right. And And exactly where the lines are drawn between... Slav and German, or Sarmatian and German, is hard to tell. And even Tacitus had a hard time identifying certain tribes, whether they were Sarmatians or Germans. Tribes like the Wends and the Finns, he, he didn't know which side they fell on. So they, they very likely could have been mixed. It doesn't matter that they were related people in the first place. And the word Slav comes to us from the word slave. That's why they're called Slavs, because the, 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 um, the Norsemen were taking them into slavery and selling them in England. So there are many Slavs in England. Our, our history is intertwined with these people. And, and, and Hitler despised the Slavs. But because those nations weren't quite as industrious as the Germans in, in, when the industrial age came to be, well, well, a lot of the Slavs were industrious. Tsarist Russia had some great industries, and, and they weren't all Germanic. Poland had, had its own um, peak of civilization before it was eclipsed by the Germans, and a great empire at one time. So, so the, the Lithuanians also. Yeah, the ones that struggled tended to have more Jews, basically, which always held them back. Absolutely, because the Jews just loot and pillage everywhere they go. 
and and Poland did have a lot of Jews, which was it's it's certainly the cause of its ultimate decline because Polish princes were friendly to the Jews, and then you had the the Frankists and and the intermarriages between Polish nobles and and Jews in 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 the eighteenth century. So these forty chapters of Isaiah, the the rest of them. In, in Isaiah chapter 15, we see prophecies against Moab. Um, in chapter 16, it's Damascus or, or Syria, which is the, the, the chief city of Aram at that time, but it was also heavily populated with Israelites ever since the time of David. There's a prophecy in chapter 18 concerning a people beyond the rivers of Cush, and that's not Cush in Ethiopia. That, that's Cush in Mesopotamia. That's a reference to Israel in captivity. There's a prophecy in, in Isaiah chapter 19 against Egypt, and, and in chapter 20 against Egypt and Cush, which is Ethiopia, and that's easily identifiable from the context. Then in chapter 21, there's another prophecy against Babylon, which mentions the Medes and the Perth. Persians, and then there's a prophecy against Duma, which is Ishmael. It, it's settled by ancient Ishmaelites, and Seir, which is Edom. It's settled by the Edomites in ancient times. Then in Isaiah chapter 22, there's a prophecy against the Valley of Vision, vision. And, and that's evidently an epithet related to Judah and Jerusalem, and it mentions Persians once again. Then in chapter 23, there's a prophecy against Tyre and the ships of Tarshish. And after all this, in Isaiah chapter 24, there's a prophecy against the land in general, the whole land, the whole earth, which would be all of the... the ancient Near and Middle East, that it would be emptied and spoiled and wasted. And it was. Over the next thousand years, it was empty and spoiled and wasted. And when the British armies came into that region and, and started to work with, in, in Iran, and, and they wanted to conquer India, ultimately, and, and that, that was in the 19th century when the British Empire expanded into those areas, only then did it start to become something that wasn't absolutely desolate and wasted. But under the Arab tribes and, and Arab rule and Islamic rule for 1,500 years, those all of those areas were shitholes, every one of them. And the people were- I was were, just going to say that. They existed in yeah, the squalor. Whole myth of these great libraries of wisdom and, and all that is complete nonsense, isn't it? Absolutely nonsense. They destroyed all the libraries of wisdom. They destroyed them in favor of Allah and, and their Quran. They destroyed them. And, and they're actually given credit to, to, for wisdom that they had taken from the Byzantines, from the Greeks and, and the Romans. Algebra is not Arab. The Greeks had geometry and algebra a thousand years before any Arab ever figured it out. It, it's incredible to think that 
what we now call algebra after an Arab word was developed by Arabs. None of that was developed by Arabs. They stole it from Greeks. Yeah, it's funny how the golden age of Islam is right when they conquered the, you know, white nations. Right. And very shortly after it all declines, you know, basically they run out of white slaves to, yes. uh, you know, build things for them. Yes. As soon as they ran out of white slaves and, and white converts, it fizzled. It was over. They had to keep conquering new white lands to maintain their vitality. And as soon as they couldn't conquer any more white lands, they fizzled. And, and they, that they basically, without any Western intervention in this modern era, they would still be living in the Stone Age or perhaps the Bronze Age. They would still be there without plumbing. They would still be there shitting in holes in the ground, squat monsters squatting over holes. That's where they belong. Going back to Isaiah, because this, that, there's, that, there's a whole theme here. When you see all the interaction, in Isaiah chapter 23, there's prophecies against Tyre and the ships of Tarshish, the, the trade with, in, throughout the Mediterranean basin, once again. And then in 24, that prophecy that the land would be emptied, spoiled, and wasted, which is what happened, which is why Isaiah is valuable, because he stuck out his neck and said that. He wrote that. He wrote these prophecies all the way back in the late 8th century B.C. In chapter 27, there's a prophecy against Leviathan the serpent. And the end of the chapter mentions the two captivities of Israel once again. They shall come which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria and the outcasts of the land of Egypt. And that's a reference to those two captivities that I explained earlier this morning or this evening because this is going to air Saturday, right? Well, well, that Leviathan the serpent is representative of, of those Kenites and, and Rephaim who have always been in, in the underlying layers and, and background of Adamic society, corrupting it. That's what Leviathan the serpent is. It, it's the international Jew. The top of the food chain for the, the mud races, right? The sewer people. Right, exactly. And he spews that, that same serpent is the serpent that spews of, out of his mouth a flood after the woman in Revelation chapter 12, but we'll probably get to that next week, right? In Isaiah chapter 28, there's a woe to Ephraim, which is the term, the prophetic term used to represent the northern ten tribes. And then a woe to Ariel in 29, which is an, an epithet for Jerusalem. In verse in chapter 30 of Isaiah, because he's giving all of these prophecies at a time just before or at the very beginning of the Assyrian deportations and captivities of the Israelites. So in Isaiah chapter 30, there's a warning that Israel should not turn to help from Egypt against the Assyrians. In other words, the Israelites were seeking to ally themselves with Egypt, thinking that with a coalition, they could overcome the Assyrians. And Isaiah is telling them, look, 
that ain't going to work. Don't even try it. Because Egypt was seriously declined by this time. And if you really want to understand what's going on, in that same century as Isaiah was writing this, Nubians invaded Egypt, and Egypt got a nigger problem. And I sincerely believe that that's what Isaiah is referring to in um, Isaiah chapter 41, I think, where, where it says that Yahweh says that he gave up Cush and Mitzrayim. He gave up Ethiopia and Egypt for the sake of the children of Israel. In other words, those Nubian invasions happened because the children of Israel were not, could not get help from those nations of the South, those African nations, if I have to say it that way. Even though they were white, they were overrun by Nubians to prevent those nations from going to war with the Assyrians. They couldn't. And the Israelites were destined to go into Assyrian captivity. It was already written in the prophets. If Egypt and Ethiopia were strong at the time and could have joined Israel in a coalition against the Assyrians, history would have been different. But Yahweh, the God of Israel, said this was going to happen. This was actually first prophesied all the way back in the book of Numbers that Asher would take Israel captive. So Moses actually first prophesied the Assyrian captivity. In the words of Balaam, in the words which Yahweh put into the mouth of Balaam, the prophet of Syria, who tried to curse the children of Israel, and he couldn't. And that's another digression and, and a long story. I'm sorry about all the digressions. Some of them are actually probably good background to understanding all of this. So in Isaiah chapter 34, we see... Yahweh's wrath against all nations for the controversy of Zion, which isn't really the place, it's the people, and that the land would become desolate, a habitation of dragons and satyrs and owls and wild beasts. So, it's very clear in subsequent history that the Fertile Crescent, as it used to be called, or, or as it's called, referring to more ancient times, that the Fertile Crescent did become desolate. And it's a hellhole. So here again, we have another prophecy which clearly came true, and people might wonder who the dragons, satyrs, owls, and wild beasts are. Well, I'll tell you who they are. That's the squat monsters and sand niggers that live there today. They are the dragons and satyrs and owls and wild beasts. Isaiah is not describing little critters. He's describing people with those names. They're all pejoratives that the prophet's using to describe the people that are going to be left behind in those regions, and that's exactly what happened. In Isaiah chapter 36, we start to see historical records of deportations of Israel by the Assyrians, and in 37, Isaiah is informing um, or prophesying that the Assyrians would also come against Judah and Jerusalem. And Hezekiah 
in Isaiah chapter 39, becomes friendly with Babylon, which would give him leverage against the Assyrians, right? So the future Babylonian conquest of Judah is prophesied as punishment for Hezekiah trying to make a league with the Babylonians. So in Isaiah chapter 40, there's a conclusion of the first part of Isaiah's book of prophecy. In the comforting of Jerusalem, and in spite of the ill-fated announcements upon the city that it would be conquered by the Babylonians. And, in, and then there's an ultimate promise of redemption and reconciliation for Israel. So that is my summary, or is a quick summary, of the first 40 chapters of Isaiah. And when we read this, entire prophecy and see all these interactions with these surrounding nations and where those nations are, the Medes, the Persians, the, the Iberians, the, the people of Tarshish, right? And, and all the other places that are mentioned. What does any of this have to do with any other people but white people or Caucasian people? If the Parthians had come to conquer the Persians and the Parthians are from the Saka and the Saka were called by the Assyrians Qumri or Kimaroi, then the Parthians must have been Israelites. And the Parthians, if you look at all the archaeological images of ancient Parthians, they are absolutely white European people. There's no other way to describe them. All of this entire narrative proves that the Israelites were white. And there's no interaction or mention of these Nubians that would invade Egypt and, and Kush or, or Ethiopia. I'm going to look that passage up now. I, I, I've cited it quite a bit, but I think it's Isaiah 41.3, perhaps. I'm sorry. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 3. As Isaiah is warning the Israelites not to turn to Egypt for help, in the second part, and we're going to discuss the second part of Isaiah momentarily, in the second part of Isaiah, in chapter 43, and this is being written in retrospect. For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom. Past tense. Ethiopia and Sheba for thee. Well, what happened to Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sheba in that very century? It was overrun by niggers. They were overrun by Nubians from what we know today is Sudan. And Egypt suffered Negro pharaohs for maybe 50 to 75 years, right around that same time. So Egypt couldn't come to the aid of Israel because Egypt had a nigger problem. It's pretty clear. Once and you today reconcile... we're in the same problem, right? We're... We're, um, you know, 
basically ruled over by Jews. And unfortunately, people think they can turn to these other races when in reality it's repent, just like uh, Isaiah saying, right? Well, well, absolutely. That the only solution is repentance. And, and right now we're ending up like Egypt. But that is also a, a, um, a facet of prophecy. Okay. Returning to Isaiah. The second part of Isaiah. A lot of modern commentators love to claim that Isaiah had two authors. And, and I'm, I just looked real quick. Um, LumenLearning.com. The Nubians conquered Egypt, the popular date, 730 BC. The same time that Hezekiah becomes the king of Judah. And Isaiah is writing these things. That's when it happened, 730 BC. Around 730 BC, the Nubian king successfully invaded and conquered Egypt, extending his control to the whole Nile Valley. So there you have it. And, and I'm doing this, of course, extemporaneously. That's why I had to look that up, because I don't really remember all the, the, the specifics about the facts. But the general narrative is certainly verifiable, and the prophet is vindicated by all history. And that's why we're Christians. And that's why we have to be Catholic Christians. We have to accept the entire scriptures as being true. And we have to understand the scriptures from the prophets. As Paul had said to the Romans, that the things that were written before time were written for our learning and our instruction. So where should we learn about Christianity? From the Jews? <laughs> or from the prophets? <laughs> the second part of the prophecy of Isaiah was certainly written by Isaiah in spite of all the fools that doubt that. Both Christ and his apostles had frequently quoted from these last 25 chapters of Isaiah. And they asserted that the writer was Isaiah, referring quite often to Isaiah the prophet. In the King James Version, that's Esaias the prophet, because that's kind of the way Isaiah would be spelled in Greek, right? No matter which part of Isaiah's writings they cited, whether it be from the earlier chapters or the later ones, they referred to it as Isaiah the prophet. They never indicated that there were two Isaiahs, the way the Jews claim today. But the real reason for these two markedly different portions of Isaiah is very plain. And it's much plainer than assuming that there were two different prophets named Isaiah. In chapter 1, Isaiah professed that he had written these prophecies in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, while there are various differences among the popular chronologies, this means that Isaiah started his prophesying 
in the days of Uzziah, sometime before 739 B.C. And he was probably completed with his prophecies by about 698 B.C. because he had to be finished with them before Hezekiah died and a successor took his place. Otherwise, he would have named the successor, right? So he had to start them in the days of Uzziah, whose Uzziah died about 739 B.C. And he was succeeded by Jotham. Jotham and Ahaz didn't rule Judah for very long. Hezekiah becomes king probably about 729, 728 BC. And he ruled until about 699, 698 BC. So Isaiah wrote his prophecies over a period of at least 40 years. Now, that's not incredible, right? I mean, the typical career for a man is 40 years. So this is evidenced where Isaiah had lived long enough to prophecy, witness, and record the Assyrian captivities of Israel and the, the failed Assyrian siege of Jerusalem. So the first portion of Isaiah's work, through chapter 49, through chapter 39 at least, and possibly also chapter 40, because chapter 40 is basically only a reassurance to Israel because of the events of the first 39 chapters, right? So they were all written up to a time shortly after the siege of Jerusalem, which most likely ended around 701 B.C., it may have ended in 702, 701, right around there. That's the entire first 39 or 40 chapters of Isaiah's work. Therefore, when Isaiah wrote these last 26 chapters of his prophecy, he had perhaps at least three more years to do so before the death of Hezekiah, because he must have been finished before Hezekiah died. So he must have written these last 26 chapters in that two or three year period between the end of the siege of Jerusalem and the death of Hezekiah. Those chapters were written of Israel, which was already in captivity since by then the 10 northern tribes and the large portion of the two tribes in Judah had already been taken into Assyrian captivity. Therefore, Isaiah, throughout these 26 chapters, has an entirely different attitude. That's why a lot of people claim it must have had a different author. But no, it's Isaiah switching from the prophecies which he recorded throughout those 40 years about what was going to happen to Israel. And now he's speaking in hindsight about what had happened to Israel, and he's giving them prophecies of what's going to happen in their captivity. So it's two different perspectives. So it appears to be two different books. No, it's not two different books. It's one writer, two perspectives. So in these last 26 chapters, he's not addressing Israel and Judah in Palestine, but rather he is addressing them at their ultimate destination in the West, which itself serves as a prophecy. But it was not and, only... Um, I'm sorry. 
was Doma. just going to say Assyria fell, uh, Nineveh fell only in 692, so only 10 years well, after Isaiah. No, uh, Nineveh Assyria fell in 612. Right? Nineveh fell in 612, I'm sorry. 612. Oh, sorry, I'm way off, sorry. Yeah. So, so it was like 80, 90 years after. <laughs> yes. It, it was about 90, 86 years after the death of Hezekiah, Nineveh fell. Maybe 87, give or take a year, right? We always have to give or take a year or two concerning all of these dates because it's that there are, um, if you read some ancient Greek classics, I mean, Diodorus Siculus's chronology is like three years off of the modern popular chronology. And, and for who knows what reasons. That's just the, the, the way it is. I, I mean, maybe all the modern popular chronologies are wrong. But the, the approximations are fine. That, that's when we're talking about stuff that happened 2,700 years ago. If I think about what I did yesterday, I can't give you exact times of everything I did. I could tell you what I did and say, well, sometime in the evening, Melissa and I went to this place and met so-and-so. I can't tell you exactly what time we got there. Maybe in some cases, but not throughout my whole day. Okay, so how are we going to get 2,700 years ago down to, to a precise date? Isaiah's last 26 chapters was not only a prophecy of the destiny of Israel. It was also a prophecy of the coming of Christ, given from the perspective that it had already happened even before it happened, where it says in Isaiah chapter 41, and this is the opening of those 26 chapters, keep silence before me, O islands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near, then let them speak. Let us come near to judgment. Who raised up the righteous man from the east? and called him to his foot, gave the nations before him, and made him rule over kings. He gave them as the dust to his sword, and as driven stubble to his bow. He pursued them, and passed safely, even by the way that he had not gone with his feet. Who had wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning, I, Yahweh, the first, and with the last, I am he. Christ being called to come to his people from the east, Christianity was brought to Europe from the east, and the apostles traveled to the lost sheep of the 12 tribes of Palestine. Of from Palestine, the apostles traveled from Palestine to the north and the west. But how else do we know these islands are in the west? Because in Isaiah chapter 11, for example, it speaks of the Israelites and it says, but they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west. However, in the Septuagint, it is ships and not shoulders. When the Assyrians are invading, the Israelites are leaving by sea, and it, large numbers of them apparently did and evaded captivity in that manner. But much more explicitly, at the very end of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 66, Yahweh God tells, tells us exactly where he would send the Israelites of the Assyrian captivity. And it says, For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall come that I will gather all nations and tongues 
and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escaped of them, meaning the people that escaped the Assyrian captivity, to Tarshish, to Spain, right? Pull and Lud that draw the bow, to, to Baal and Javan. Now, everywhere in scripture that you see Javan and ev everywhere in Persian inscriptions where you see the same word, Yavana, it's a reference to the Ionian Greeks. To the isles afar off that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations, where it says Gentiles in the King James Version. Now, all of those places can be identified, except perhaps for Pol. Tarshish is Tartessus on the Mediterranean coast of Spain, which was described by Herodotus in the 5th century BC to have been a mercantile seaport even before the Trojan War. This name Pol only appears elsewhere as the name of an Assyrian king. Commentators try to confuse it for put or foot, P-U-T, instead of P-U-L, which is a Hamitic tribe often associated with the Lubim. The Lubim of scripture is the tribe from which the Greeks got the name Libya. And the Greeks had divided Africa in their own view of geography into three portions. There was Egypt, and that was basically the Nile River Valley and the lands immediately around it. And that was separate from Libya, which word comes from these Lubim. And then there was Ethiopia, which or Cush, which was to the south of Egypt. And the Greeks called that Ethiopia, as opposed to the Ethiopia of the east, which is the name the Greeks gave to the Cushites of Mesopotamia and the lands around Mesopotamia, because the Hittites and, and the Canaanite tribes and other tribes of Cush were in Mesopotamia for, for thousands of years, but eventually got sort of um, blended in or marginalized. It, it's difficult to tell, but they for the most part, no longer appear in history after the period of the Assyrian, Babylonian, and Persian empires. You don't see any more references to Ethiopia in the east or to Kush in that region. There's vestiges of the name, such as the Hindu Kush mountains and Karkamish is actually a it was actually an ancient Hittite city. But for the most part, memories of Ethiopians in the east or, or Kush in the Near East are, are pretty much snuffed out by the time the, of the Persian and Parthian empires. Okay, that's another digression. I'm sorry. So Pol, um, a lot of commentators say that it must have been some region in Assyria. It's hard to tell that the um, 
Tiglath Pileser III was actually referred to as Pul in scripture. Lud. They are the Lydians of Anatolia and northern Italy. The Etruscans were said in the ancient Greek classics to have been a colony from the Lydians. So the Etruscans and the Lydians in Anatolia would both represent Lud. Tubal was a Japetai tribe originally on the Black Sea near the Caucasus Mountains, but later, along with another Japetai tribe, Meshach, it was, they were driven north through the Caucasus Mountains into what is now called Russia. Javan are the Ionian Greeks. Now, the Ionians were the Greeks of Attica, where the city Athens is located, and the Greeks of Ionia in western Anatolia, but they also had settlements on the Black Sea, in the Danube River Valley, and in Marseille on the Mediterranean coast of France, which in ancient times was called Massilia by the Greeks. That was, it was originally a Phoenician settlement, but the Phocian Greeks had migrated there and taken it for themselves in the, I believe in the 6th century BC. It may have been the 7th that the Phocian Greeks did that. And the Phocian Greeks were from Anatolia and they were a division of the Ionians. So, in fact, they were the most notable mariners and colonists of all the Ionians. So, within 300 years after Isaiah wrote, the Chimerians and Scythians began appearing in and overrunning all of these places. In Western Anatolia, all around the Black Sea, in Greece, in, in Northern Italy, in Spain, in Gaul or, or France, where, where the um, where, where the where, where Marseille was, where the Phocians were, where the Ionian Greeks were also established, we see these Chimerians, these Scythians, Saka, invading all these places within three hundred years of Isaiah saying that that's where the children of Israel of the Assyrian captivity would be sent. So. We either imagine that half of Europe was overrun by Negroes or by Arab-looking Jews sometime after Isaiah had written these words, or we imagine that the Israelites were the Germanic Chimerians and Scythians, who were called Sake, whose migrations into Europe at, these, at this very time were recorded by the Greeks and who were later called Galatahi by the Greeks in the 4th century B.C., and by the Romans, they were called Gauls, and then Germans in the first century BC. So which is it? Did niggers and Arabs overrun Europe at that time, or did white Germanic people <laughs> overrun Europe at that time? Yeah, the truth is obvious, right? Uh, they, must, they were all white, and so were the Israelites. There's no other way of going about it. Well, well... That, that's that, that's um, very clear to me in ancient history, and that very much explains why that these people that were the Sake and Kimroi, 
who were dwelling and in and dominating. They came to dominate the culture in Central Asia around the Black and Caspian Seas, the Caucasus Mountains. The the later Greek writers identify both, and and I'm referring especially to Procopius, identify both the Huns and the Goths as having come from the Masagete of Asia, which were a branch of the Saka or Scythians who became quite numerous in Central Asia. That would explain why these people, rather suddenly, over a period of two or three hundred years, migrated down that Danube River Valley into Europe at a time shortly after the time that Herodotus said that there were no tribes living north of the Danube, except a tribe that, that he mentions whose name has momentarily escaped me, but they were a colonist of the Medes. Well, what weren't the children of Israel settled in the cities of the Medes? I, I mean, and, and now these first people that Herodotus, 450 BC, sees north of the Danube are from the Medes, as they must have explained it to him. And he didn't know of any other tribe north of the Danube. And he was there. He was actually there on the Danube investigating these things so that he could write his histories. And, and that was because the Persians had tried to conquer those people that lived around the Black Sea in order to facilitate um, and have advantage in their planned invasions of, of the Greeks so that they could conquer the Greeks. Now, the Persians lost, but that's why Herodotus went there to investigate that so that he could write it into his histories. And he did. He thought that was an important part of the Persian War against the Greeks. Above north of the Danube, it was very cold. And, and many of the Greeks, even later, considered it uninhabitable, inhospitable, because of the cold. When um, Xenophon led his 10,000 men back to Greece from Babylonia because of, of the failed campaign of, of um, I think his name was Cyrus, the, the governor of Persian Anatolia, who sought to overthrow his own brother from the, from the throne of Persia, and these 10,000 mercenaries had accompanied him to go to Babylon and join in his coup. And Cyrus was killed the first day of the fighting with his brother, who I believe was Artaxerxes IV, I believe. Um, I might be mistaken that this is something I haven't really read in a long time. But, well, the route that the 10,000 took in returning to Greece, because they had to fight their way back, that they, weren't, that they were asked to give up their weapons, and they weren't giving up their weapons. So they basically had to risk their way back to Greece. They took the northerly route because they thought that would 
be the safest route for them along the southern coast of the Black Sea. And thousands of them died from the cold because they weren't prepared for it. So if they couldn't exist along the southern coast of the Black Sea because of the incredible cold, how, how did people exist north of the Black Sea at that time? It, it must have been a hell of a lot colder. But the truth is that north of the Black Sea and, and the lands in northern Europe were not settled until a warming period came later in history and they were able to be settled. Then by the time it cooled off again, that they were well entrenched and, and well prepared. And, and that didn't happen until the end of the Viking Age that it started to cool again. We've always had those temperature fluctuations that prevented people from dwelling that, that far north at an earlier time. So my point is that Germans didn't come from Germany. They migrated from these lands around the Caucasus Mountains and, and the northern Anatolia and the Near East where the temperature was a lot more conducive to human life in ancient times, where, where today those areas that we came from are, are a shithole, just as Isaiah said they were going to be desolate, and Europe became the center of civilization. Yeah, all these uh, Jew theories on the origin of Europeans are a complete ball, right? They make absolutely no sense. That, and it's astonishing that people actually believe them. Well, well right. And clowns like David Duke and, and other white nationalists who, who reject Christian identity, they actually think that our German ancestors, the greatest engineers that have ever been on this planet, that our German ancestors sat in the ice on their asses for 30,000 years and did nothing until they decided to invade Rome um, <laughs> from about the second or third century BC. And that's simply not true. That, that, that would mean a bunch of cavemen just came in and sacked Rome, you know, <laughs> like living in mud huts. That, that just doesn't make sense. No, it makes no sense at all. And, and there's no infrastructure. If you want to overcome nature and live in a very cold climate, you have to have technology and, and infrastructure built to withstand that climate. You have to have a means of doing that. Where is the infrastructure? There is none. Where are the furnaces? Where are the permanent buildings required? There aren't any. There is no such archaeology in Europe. When they find something, it, it's usually just a, a, a wooden straw house or something like that, that that's with no, um, no, no real evident means of sustaining prolonged cold conditions, long winters. Yeah, it's you not need to there. come from a civilization and bring, you know, uh, goods and supplies with you to build a base of operations. Right. And then from there, you begin to spread out. You know, right. It has to be done that way. 
And those things don't exist in Northern Europe in, in ancient times. They haven't been discovered. So we didn't sit there in the cold for all those centuries, 30 centuries. We didn't do that. We didn't come from there. But we do find evidence of um, like Phoenician colonies, you know, tin mines on them, like the coast of Cornwall, you know, South England, where you can clearly see everything we've just been saying that they started with outposts and then gradually a civilization came after. Right. Absolutely. And, and that's, you know, England is a little different than northern central Europe because England has a different climate. It's warmed by the Atlantic Ocean, by the Gulf Stream. So, so it, it's more temperate at that time than, say, Poland or, or East Germany, what, where it was absolutely inhospitable at that time. And, and the ancient Greeks attested that nobody lived there north of the Danube, except for a couple of colonists from where? From central, from, from the Near East, from, from Media, which was on the border of the Caucasus Mountains. What was, Armenia was immediately south of the Caucasus Mountains, and Media was southeast of that, on the Caspian Sea and the borders of Persia. And Assyria. That's where they came from. The first Germans, the first people that Herodotus met north of the Danube. <laughs> That's where they came from. Okay. We will um, commence with the Minor Prophets and, and talk about the Revelation, I, I pray, in our next presentation. Thank you for being yeah, here. Brilliant. I look forward to that. Praise Yahweh. Thanks for having me, Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of European people, not the God of all these Arab bastards. Thank you. Absolutely not. And I don't see Arab bastards overrunning Europe until the rise of Islam for entirely different reasons than what Isaiah had said here. And we'll talk maybe more about Isaiah in, in our next presentation also. There's a few things that I've left unsaid that I would like to say. Praise Yahweh. Good night. Thank you.